Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero. Thanks for listening to The Tour Coach. These are the players, coaches, experts, stories, and insights from my work on the PGA Tour at my retreats or my downtown teaching center in Mobile, Alabama. My goal is to shed light and share insights from the people who I've gotten to know and meet working on the PGA Tour and teach it through my career. And I hope this helps all of us play, coach, and teach better golf. If you like what you hear, please give us a good review and take a look at our new Dew Sweepers YouTube channel or the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, where I've taken some time to share videos of help from my teachings, travels, and journeys. All right, great. Once again, thanks to everybody that's uh, participating in this live, as well as the folks that uh, are going to listen to it recorded. I've been looking forward to and excited for this one. Jackson is always sitting in with us, but uh, my good friend Kevin Kirk, who is I've had the good fortune, especially over the last year, to spend a good bit of time with him and do some teaching with Kevin. Kevin's a PGA Teacher of the Year, Golf Digest Top 50, Golf Magazine Top 100, and brilliant teacher and great at sharing knowledge. And I thought it'd be awesome. Kevin, thanks for taking the time. I know you're out on the road after a long week at Augusta, but I thought it'd be great to have you sit in and just talk a little bit about your development as a teacher with these folks that are obviously, if they're taking the time to do this stuff, they're actually passionate about and care about their craft and wanting to get better. Tony, thanks. And Jackson, I appreciate you guys having me on. I think, you know, we start kind of looking at, you know, developing coaches. I mean, in my world, there's three things that I look at, trying to develop players, develop coaches, and then try to seek out opportunities for myself and others. And so this coach development thing, Tony, is really important. And I applaud you for for taking it on and trying to, you know, reach out and and help this this next generation of coaches and and, and some of your some of our peers, I'm sure, will listen in. But I do. I would say that you know that's really a responsibility that we that we have. And for anybody that's jumping on, I, I also would also applaud you for for taking trying to take some steps and make yourself a better teacher. I think unfortunately that the systems that we have set up currently don't do a great job for teacher development. And so it it, it almost lands on the on the coach themselves to try to figure it out. Which is it, you know there's so much information out there today. It's, it's mind boggling to try to kind of, you know, make your way through it. So it's, it's a tricky place. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, Tony, both you and I have had the good fortune of having some mentors along the way. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, for me, I, I backed into my, my coaching through, uh, I was, I was a failed player, like a lot of coaches. And so, you know, I was a young, I grew up overseas and I played a bunch of sports, multi-sport athlete, and I became a good golfer by time just post puberty, probably time I was 13 or 14. I was already, I could, I could play. And, and I ran that out for about, all the way through junior golf and amateur golf and was all American in college. And you know, all that in my mind justified me pursuing golf as a career. So I decided to kind of give it a go. And so I, I, I took it on for five or I guess six years as a, as a pro. And for some reason, I just couldn't get all the pieces in place. And, and it wasn't for a lack of anything. I mean, I, I, I worked really super hard at my craft. I really desperately wanted to, to be a great player. I had good coaching, but uh, you know, sometimes you just, you're not, turn the right screws you're not really focusing on things that actually move the needle and, and so in retrospect i can i can see where i may have missed a couple of pieces but as it turns out i think i'm probably more wired up to be a coach i think my, my personality is more i'm not hyper competitive so the idea of you know trying to go out and beat somebody you know is not that big a deal to me i i, I do like the pursuit of mastery so my, my golf is all, always about trying to master my craft and and uh but i'm a lot more of a collaborator and so my so this this idea of being a my role as a coach and a teacher has actually been a lot, you know, it's actually probably true, more in line with my true spirit, which is great. Because I, once I kind of figured that out, I mean, I, I, from that day on, I haven't really worked a day in my life. I've just shown up and hung out with people at the golf course and tried to help them along a little bit and, and you know, 
my, I was figuring out a way to scratch out a living doing it. So, you know, I was, it was kind of funny cause I had some, you know, to your, to your point, I did have some, some good coaches early on and people that I was trying to, they were helping me help move me along. And I made a conscious decision. Once I started teaching, to try to just press the delete button and try to kind of look at it through a fresh set of eyes. And so while I had all the experience and all the, all the knowledge and my golf IQ was, was super high started trying to understand golf from just a, a different perspective. So I tried to start looking at it from a, from a, a you know, there, back in the 1990, when I started coaching, there wasn't much information out about, about the tools that we have today. The technology wasn't there. If you want to go see a teacher, you had to really hop on a plane or go see them at a, at a seminar. They just, you know, you didn't just couldn't pop on the internet and find them. So I did have a chance to kind of, so I dug in, I started focusing on golf from a, from a, trying to understand the geometry, the physics, the biomechanics, the neurosciences. And I went to work on just, let my curiosity drag me around and I taught a lot. And I can, if I, if I can tell you one thing, if you want to become a good teacher, I don't think you can do it without teaching a lot. I think, I think there's saddle time that's involved and all the mastery models that you would look at would say it was suggested. It takes 10,000 hours to be a master or anything. I mean, there's people that argue that, but I think it's pretty good. I, it's a pretty good bent idea for, yeah. And so, you know, I, uh, I, I would say that, that you know it takes time and if you're if you want to be a great teacher you have to put yourself in a place where you can teach a lot and you know i was i've, I've heard some of my colleagues say hey you know i've looked back at the first group of people i taught and i would you know i, I look back and say gosh i you know i'd like to go back and give them their money back i, I never really felt that way I've, i always felt i knew more than they knew i felt my heart and my spirit were in the right place and uh, you know I was, I was all, you know, I was also kind of learning along the way. So I was learning as much from them as they were from me. And we were, so it's been a wonderful, wonderful ride for me. I've gotten to see things that, I mean, I mean, I've had the front row seat to so many cool things, you know, watching kids win majors and the Ryder cups and president's cups and, you know, uh, you know, hanging out with people like you, Tony, and, and, you know, getting to know some of the people in the golf space. And uh, so I, for me, it's just been an incredible ride. And, you know, I feel, still feel like I'm, I've got a lot to learn. You know, I, I, I still think about things and scratch my head about things and try to sit down and talk to people. I had a long discussion with one of my colleagues today about some stuff that he was working on that I was curious about. So, you know, it's, it's a rich space. And um, I think the biggest thing that you can do is, is teach a lot and go to go, go to work on trying to build up a good network of, of people that you can, that you can pick up the phone and call and ask a question to. I think that's, you know, and it's, it, it's really, a, it's not just the golf instruction people, but the equipment people, the, the, the you know the the strength and conditioning coaches the, the physios I mean the the whole lot right so go to work on building a a wide enough of a network where you can actually pick up a phone talk to somebody and, and have somebody help you understand something on a deeper level so for me that's been it so I think that's one of the things where it's things have changed in the fact you know when I started twenty years ago or whatever and I, I was fortunate I had great mentor and Hank and Wayne and so forth and some of the great older guys. But now a lot of the stuff I'm really pushing to learn and the things that motivate me are things outside of just the teachers. Obviously, you and I, we talk a ton. And but, you know, the idea of collaborating with not just teachers, but other people in other arenas to me is a powerful way to learn and not only develop your business. But I've always felt like if you um, if you are passionate about getting better and you keep getting better and good at your craft the money side takes care of itself. I've tried to never, I made one decision one time based on money. It was the <laughs> dumbest thing I ever done. And uh, anyways, Jackson's there now, but it was a dumb decision. Right. And I, and so I tell people all the time, if you're totally motivated by doing what you believe is about getting better and you surround yourself with people that push you to get better, 
all the money side generally takes care of itself. Yes, I mean the uh, the pursuit of, of mastery and being able to do it with humility, I think, is really what it's what it's about. That's what anybody that's achieved any greatness, I think, would probably have those couple of qualities in, in their in their you know mm-hmm. within their it's part of their makeup, right? Part of their DNA. So, and guys, everybody listening, guys, girls, type in a question if you've got a question for Kevin or Jackson or myself. So you've talked about teaching a lot. I love that. I think that's a hundred percent. I think I don't know that you can get necessarily great as a teacher if you don't teach a bunch of people. And I was fortunate when I started, I got dumped at a beach resort where there was just a bunch of chops for less lack of a better word. And I probably wasn't going to see a bunch of them again right away. And so it was a great opportunity for me to take the stuff and really try it on a, on different people. What other tips for people getting started? And then, it, and then Kevin, as you've gone along and you've had your success, you know, what are some of the things that after you've had some success that kind of pushed you along more? Because I see folks too and young teachers that get where, especially with social media, they've got some success and they get some, you know, they get known, but, you know, maybe then they rest a little bit. And, I, and I, to me, the ones that are the very the best are the ones that keep pushing, keep being drugged along, you know? I mean, I think, the you know, the relentless pursuit of, of knowledge and, and trying to continue to challenge yourself is hard. It's exhausting. It actually wears you out. So I do think that probably it's okay to kind of, you know, work hard and sit on a platform for a while and kind of reconsider what you're getting ready to do and then maybe try to kind of take another take another part of the hill. So so I, I do think that, you know, it's hard to, to relentlessly focus on being better. I mean, at some point in time, you have to have to catch your breath, right? So mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm okay with the idea of, you know, of plateaus. And I mean, if you look at all the mastery stuff, you know, that it does suggest that there are plateaus. So my, my experience has been that way too, where I've, I've worked hard, I've gotten to a place and I said, okay, I'm going to take a little time here. I'm, I'm going to reconsider. I'm going to try to think about what's next. What's the next thing I need to take on, right? So I've actually been gifted with a kind of a, a really strong sense of curiosity where, I mean, I will, if I, I'm always kind of looking at things and trying to, you know, seek out and understand more and more about things. But there's, there's also that curiosity that, that where I'm, I'm not afraid to, if I see something, go take off on what appears to be a tangent. One of the things that I, I would tell you is that in my experience, you know, in golf, we actually know golf and all the people on this web, on this podcast and, and the people that work in our industry, we already know golf, right? We'd, the problem is, is that we've been kicking that ball around the pitch for a long, long time. And there's only so much space in that, you know, golf, there's, there's only so much about golf that you can understand, right? So I think the next big opportunities for us is going to be, you know, outside of golf, learning from, you know, I think the next big breaks, breakthroughs are going to be in, in the kind of in the neural space in terms of understanding how the, you know, the, how the brain works, the nervous system, how it recovers, how, how to train it. I mean, I've, that have been my big, big breakthroughs in the last couple of years. And so, I, and I learned that from not from anybody in golf. I had to go outside of golf to kind of find that. So, you know, Colby's work, right? Colby is one of the best strength coaches in the world and being around him has helped both you and I. Yeah become better coaches but so the idea there is is, is in golf is becomes more and more like a general contractor where you're at you actually have to go and go out and seek out these things that, that that you feel like apply to your craft find people that are experts in them and let those people help you and it, it does take some some humility i mean if if anybody on this podcast or or within the listening shot of a, my voice thinks they've got all the answers I'm going to, you know, I, I don't think anybody's got all the answers. So it's really about having the humility to say, you know, something I'm, I'm happy to, to just try to kind of connect with people that, that I think that, you know, they can help me and I can help them and, and try to, you know, try to move the rock down the road that way. Agree a hundred percent. Jackson, we got a question. We got our first one. At what point do you go from a golf teacher to a golf coach in terms of teaching junior golfers? 
It's a good one for you there, Kev. Well, I think, you know, supporting a kid through junior golf is, you know, I think is, is a, it's not a summer camp. It's not a, you know, you know, a, any type of workshop. I mean, supporting a kid through junior golf is a 23, 24, 25 year haul. And so, so I think the one thing I would, I would ask you to consider is if you're, if you are dealing with juniors, the very best thing you can do is start looking at some of the developmental models in terms of, you know, some of the stuff that East Fund Bali put together and has now been adopted by the Olympic Committee and the ADM PGA's PGA's doing, and try to upskill yourself on kind of what development really is. I mean, it was not what I thought it was, that's for sure. And uh, having had some chance to spend some, um, you know, a fair amount of time around East Fund and and learn kind of that developmental craft, you know, what's appropriate for a, a seven-year-old female is not appropriate, you know, for a fourteen-year-old male. And unfortunately, if you, a lot of the junior programs we get together, we, you know, we, we lose track of, of age, we lose track of development, you know, of skill levels. And, and so it, it, it actually takes quite a bit of, you know, it, it actually takes quite a bit of work. And so, you know, I, th- I think one of the most interesting things that, that, that I've seen in a lot of the clubs around the, around the world is that they'll, they'll take an assistant who's probably the least qualified person on the staff and we'll put them in touch with the junior put them in charge of the juniors. Right. And, and I, you know, it's sink or swim for the coach for sure. But I do think that, that, you know, our, our next step, step forward, I, mean, I think that the, the art of developing players is something that we, you know, coaches need to be looking at. So it's really also an interesting thing about the, about our country is that, that we take juniors from up to 18 years old and true physical development, you know, for, for a junior, you can be a junior Olympian for your 23rd birthday, which basically says that, According to the Olympic Committee and the, and the people, the sports scientists in the world, they believe that the, all the systems in the body don't fully develop until you're 23. So taking, chopping off those five or six years of development, I think, is a really bad idea. And so a junior, in my mind, goes to 20 to 23 or 24. And I'm going to try to kind of make sure that I want to make sure that my goal with a junior is to give them the, the tools they need. So on their 23rd or 24th birthday, they've got a really tough decision. If they want to take it on, they're going to have to decide. Do I go pursue, you know, whatever I've been studying in school or whatever, or do I try to kind of give this thing a go and, and try to make it make a go with my goal? Make sure they've got the tools. And so then it's up to them, right? You look at it at that perspective too, Kev, where it's, you've got till 24 to have those tools, right? Then there's not as much pressure or stress when a kid's 15 and, or 16 and he's not playing well, right? I'm not concerned about a world, a world champion at 12, 13, 14 right. years old, or even, or even at 17, you know, mm-hmm. I think once you kind of get up, you know, get past 2021, 20, that starts becoming pretty interesting to me because at that point in time, that person has had the developmental, you know, background to be able to kind of get, get themselves to be able to kind of actually be prepared to kind of take on the next step. So a lot of athletes, you know, if you start looking at the guys on the tour, even a lot of them played other sports and didn't get into golf until pretty late, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think, and so this idea of late, late development and, and you know, and, and taking care of our late developers in sport, I think is something we definitely have to kind of keep in mind because, you know, an eight-year-old world champion is, you know, I'm happy for him, but it's, it's, it's really, it's probably going to do more damage to that kid in the long run. If I could wave the magic wand, I would get rid of all competition, you know, world, those world championships until they're probably 15, 16 years old where they can handle it. Yeah, I agree with that. I, th- I think I, you get so many parents that come to you. The kids are junior world, whatever, at nine. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, you're never even going to remember that when you're 30. Well, yeah, well, the, the problem is, you know, golf is a late specialization sport, according to the, according to, you know, the, the sports scientists, which means that it doesn't really, you can't really, late specialization is you, you can't really start specializing until after puberty. 
until they get into their adult body, it's pointless because the, you know, the, the swing mechanics for a nine-year-old, and then he goes through puberty and grows five or six inches in a year. I mean, that, that body's not going to work anywhere close to the same on, on the backside of puberty. So you have to be able to kind of, the best thing you can, can do, according to sports scientists, is try to build a huge physical literacy base. So a lot of different physical activities, a lot of different sports and activities pre-puberty. You have golf be part of it. And once they kind of get past puberty, keep them in a couple of sports for a couple of years and to let their bodies get stable. And then around 16, if, if golf is their thing, then you can narrow that channel up. But otherwise, they should be doing a lot of different sports and a lot of different activities. And, and so, I mean, to, to me, that's, that's, you know, at least from what, I've, what I know and what I've studied, I think that's probably where I would hang my hat today. Jackson, we got another question. We do. A good follow-up question. Does the ability of the player change the way you coach versus the age? Does the ability change the way I coach? I think I change the way I coach based on the person, right? And and try to find the best way to reach each person. I don't know that. I mean, certainly if you're dealing with a beginner, you're going to maybe start much slower and smaller. But I mean, I, I start every person with every person with a lot of the same questions and the same, you know, and don't assume that any student, regardless of ability or age, understands everything to begin with. I like to sit and talk and explain the things that I think are important and the the things that I look for on the front end and don't take anything for granted that they already know things. So from my approach, like, you know, even with tour players, I like to start a lot at the same place, you know, and then go from there. I mean, obviously I think, uh, and Kevin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I mean, I think if you're talking about a beginner versus a tour player, there's going to be, you know, I mean, they have the ability to do things bigger and faster and quicker. And so maybe you slow some things down and you start with smaller shots. But, you know, a lot of the information and the things that I'm trying to get people to do because it's an athletic movement are the same, whether they're a beginner or they're tour player. Yeah, I would agree with you, Tony. I think, you know, for me, I, you know, as I look at it, it's always a population of one. I mean, there's no, while you have things that, that guide our decision-making, truth of the matter is it's, it's always the person in front of you, right? In junior development, there's a couple of really interesting things that get that gets tossed around. One is called relative age. So if you're born on the very first day of a season, and you're let's say we're talking about a nine-year-old boy, male or a nine-year-old female, and you're also and you're and you're, and you're also in the, you know also have a per- person that's born on the very last day of the season, that full year of development makes a huge idea. It makes it makes a huge difference, right? So even within a, a calendar year, like. There's been all sorts of studies done on national hockey and soccer that the kids that make the national teams are born the first third of the season. So they're just, they have that fuller, that fuller developmental year, right? You also have the, the idea that a kid, let's say you got a nine-year-old male, the positive and negative on that is about two years. So there's so some of the nine-year-old males are going to look like seven-year-olds. Some of them will be like 11-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have something called training age, which is how many, how, how long has the kid been training in the sport? So all that stuff has to be taken into consideration, right? Do I have a late developer, early developer, do I have a certain per- person with a lower high training age? You know, what's their skill skill set and ability? What are their goals? How much time do they have? I mean, those are all questions that that you know that you, that you that to your point, you would you would kind of go through in some sort of interview process to try to come up with an appropriate program based on the kid. You don't want to you don't want to you know teach teach calculus to a, a person that needs to be you know studying math. You know, just basic math. So, Jackson, we got another question. I saw it looked like a good one. What mistake did you guys make that you can share that can help us? We're making the same mistakes in the beginning of our careers as teaching professionals. That's a good one there, Kev. You want it? I'll start. I mean, I I think that uh, the two things I would say are, you know, I've said this a million times, but I think once you get going, 
And and I think I probably overreacted to, you know, getting fired or things happening when I had, as I had players getting better and I tried to change my style thinking that's what was popular for a time and what a player would want. And I've realized that like, you're better to be yourself and find your own way. Obviously you've got to surround yourself with great people, but I think it's important to be yourself and not just try to mimic whatever's popular for the day. And then the other thing is, I think that, um, you know, you've got to be honest with the player and, and stick to what you think is important and what you believe. And if, you know, if they fire you for it, they fire you. But I mean, you're going to get fired if you don't tell them anyways. I mean, what the truth is, because one way or the other, but I think you've always got to be honest and tell them straight from the heart and honest what you think and what you believe. And I think you need to be true to yourself and, and be who you are. I mean, all, all that stuff is really super important, Tony. I think, I think for me, it's, you know, I, I got tangled up on style, thinking that style is more important than competence. And so as I've kind of matured as a coach, I would tell you that I start with, you know, is the player competent? Or can, can they do what they're asked to do frequently enough to, to generate the type of success they want to, you know, they, they, they want to achieve? So if they're able to do that, then there's no need for me to kind of get in there and start superimposing all the things that I think are important on top of them. My, my job is to actually try to understand them learn how they, how, they do, how, they, how they go about doing things and try to make a, a better version of them. And I think that's, you know, particularly with, with, with accomplished players, I, I think that's really important. I mean, I made several mistakes where I would take an accomplished player. They had some idiosyncrasies that I, they didn't quite match up with the way I saw the world. And I, th- I believed that fix, you know, sorting out the style was going was to drive the confidence. But the truth of the matter is, it went the wrong direction because the interference of, of trying to kind of change that pattern created so much disturbance that actually negatively impacted their performance. So it's, it's, so, I mean, understanding style, you know, having, having principles and fundamentals that you, that you, that you believe in is important. I'm at a point now where I, I, I look at, is the player competent? Number one, number two, are they going to hurt themselves doing what they're doing? If they're, if they're not going to, if those, if they can get past those two boxes, they're competent and they're not going to hurt themselves. And my job is to simply try to learn what they're doing and try to simply improve that and not try to superimpose all my, all the stuff that I think is so damn important on top of, right? I agree. I love that. I I think one thing I've tried to get better at is figuring out why players are already, that are already good, why they're good and figure out ways (laughs) to enhance making them better instead of just jumping in there and changing things because I would normally change it when I was younger. Yeah. So I, I also think that, you know, the, once a player kind of gets to us, you know, it's, it requires a lot of attention and mindfulness too by the coach. So for example, there are going to be times when, when you have a player that's going to require some to have to maybe change a pattern for whatever reason. And during that time period, everybody in the system has to understand that the performance is probably going to drop off because it's, you know, the, the disruption that, that's involved in trying to change a movement pattern is, is significant. And it's going to take some time for the athlete to adapt. So giving everybody in the system a little time to you know, the, for specifically the athlete and the, and the, you know, the influencers and the people around that athlete need to understand, okay, we're going to, we've decided to make this change. So we're going to go to work on, on trying to alter this pattern. It's going to be disruptive. I'm not saying you got to play worse to get better. I, I don't think that's true, but yeah. I do think that I do think the idea that, that, you know, when you are trying to change something and the, the, the type of focus that requires uh, can, is going to be disruptive and it's going to, it's going to negatively impact performance in most cases. So, and if you're so, if you're focused on on changing, or what are you trying to do? Am I changing a pattern here, or am I trying to drive performance? Because the, the driving of performance, that type of training, looks way different, way different. 
it's much more task oriented and much more around you know building building competence and not so much style. Jackson, we got more. We sure do. Besides playing multiple sports, what are some of the great ways or information to help build skill development with juniors? Go ahead, Kev. That's up your alley. Well, I, th- I think you know you first have to start kind of looking at where they are in their in their developmental pathway. I mean. If you've got a kid that's that's already played a bunch of sports and has a high movement vocabulary, you put a golf club in his hand, and you can almost just have him mimic what's what's happening. Uh, have a good player out there, he can he can almost mimic it and make it happen, right? But if you've got a kid that doesn't have you know, a great movement vocabulary, and you ask them to start trying to do things, then then I think it's that's a different that's a different a different kettle of fish. So going back to our, our earlier discussion, everything is you know it, it's always kind of that you know, population of one. I do think that that you know there are certain things that I things that I think are going are important in terms of if I'm trying to pick some sports that I would like to kind of see kids do or activities. I think uh, martial arts probably good. I think um, any racket sports probably good. I think sprinting and jumping, uh, all the ABCs, all you know, are, are fantastic. And and I would try to encourage young coaches to try to integrate some of those things into your junior training. So if a kid comes out for an hour lesson. The first 15 minutes should be some sort of movement activities at some, you know, trying to kind of make sure that you're you're improving their physical literacy while they're at that golf lesson. And and even with the with the tour players, the very first thing they do when they get to the golf course is not go out there and start hitting golf balls. They usually go to a gym and try to get their bodies turned on. So that the best players in the world have figured out, okay, I do better when I get my body turned on first and then I try to go golf. I don't know anybody at this point in time that actually just walks right out there and starts hitting golf balls with the exception of maybe John Daly. And no, no, no skin off his back. I got the guy's one of the best players in this era, but I mean, he's, he would be considered an outlier in today's world for sure. And I don't know that we're trying to develop too many junior golfers to be John Day. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to John. I've had some fun in his bus one time, but yeah, I hear that's you. what we're trying to No, I love that. Uh, Jackson, I think we've had, a, we're getting questions flying in like crazy. So it's good. Next question. How do you like to go about tweaking a pattern during tournament season? Tony, you want that one? I think that's the challenge we all have, to be honest. I mean, it's when you make changes and when, when to do it. I prefer, I mean, I know Kevin and I've talked about this. I, I think it's always best to make changes, anything major, in an off season or in an off week away from the golf course. I try to avoid anything. I try to avoid anything new at a tournament. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of well, that's kind of how I was brought up. Sometimes and Kevin, I'm sure you've been there too. And I know Wayne's on, on, I mean, we've all been there where it's unavoidable and you have to, but I think in a perfect world, you try to not do it. I always try to, but that's why I'm pretty big with my players on having a plan and knowing the things that not only we're working on now, but knowing long-term where we're wanting to go with things so that you can say, I mean, I get that this is something we want to deal with, but this is where it falls into the long-term plan and this is the time to do it. And so I think that's why it's really critical to have a, to have a long-term plan with a player that you and the player understand, like these are the things we're working on now and these are things down the road that depending on what you do and how you're so on and so forth that we're going to attack later because I think that helps you avoid somebody wanting to work on something at a tournament that just pops into their head. Right. Yeah. We've all had and with social media, put somebody puts a video out, somebody says something and then somebody's wife decides they got to go work on something or, you know, I mean, it happens nowadays. Right. So I think, you know, I think the better you are where when you sit down with your player and you lay out the plan where you are, the things that you think 
that you both agree you need to work on that are important. And then you also have a long-term vision for the player. I think the less those types of things happen and the more you can stay on track and the more you can stick to, hey, this is when we're going to work on this and this is where we're going to tackle it. Now, what do you think about that, Kev? I think that's exactly right, Tony. I, you know, for me, as I, as I look at it, I think, you know, the idea of periodizing your training is really important. So having an off-season, a preseason, in-season as much as you can. In golf today, the, the kids are, the kids in the, on the tour and off the tour actually have a chance to compete year round. So you have to have some discipline and say, okay, we're going to take these first, these next, these, these are, this is our off season. We're going to try to put any, any changes, significant change is going to be, you know, we're going to really try to make sure it happens in there, whether it's equipment, a new fitness regime, a new mental regime, new swing mechanics or whatever. It's good. You've got a time for the, for the athlete and the coach to kind of get in there, make whatever, you know, changes and let, you know, let the adaptation kind of take place. Then you put them under the pump, let them test in a preseason, and then you focus on trying to kind of have them optimize their performance in season. And that takes every player's different. So like a high school kid is going to be different than a AJGA kid. And that's going to be different than a kid that's playing on a national squad for England uh, yeah. or Australia. I mean, so each kid has to have their own, own periodization. I would also say in the midst of all that, that the, the ability to identify a blueprint that you're going to use for, for a player, and they, each, each player should have their own blueprint, by the way. And to your, like, like you were mentioning, okay, this is the stuff that we're going to work on. And if you can get that set up in the off season, when you get in season, we're only going to answer questions in the context of this, of this box. Okay. So on site, it doesn't, you're not going to be, it's no, no experimentations happening. We're not going to experiment on site. It's not going to happen. Okay. So if you can, if you can take the time during the off season to get the blueprint set up, okay, this is our plan that we're going to be trying to execute going forward. And so we know that we answer questions in, inside this box, all right? If, if we need to stop and take a time out to have a, a discussion about that, we will. But until further notice, this is our box. And these are the things that we work on. How do you handle it? Because we get it at all levels now. And I'm sure that folks listening where so-and-so, it doesn't have, it have to be a tour player. It could be a high school player or a, or a junior player. You know, they come to you and whatever. They're on, you, you've got a good plan. you got a program. And then a parent goes, well, you know, I've been watching so-and-so. and and he doesn't do this, and I think we need to do this. Let's work on that. How do you handle that with the with the player and the, and the parent, especially in high performance golf or even junior development? You've got three stakeholders: you've got the athlete, you got the coach, and you got the parent. And the parent could also be just we'll call it maybe not the parent. I mean, we use it. It's also it's been spoken about that in in kind of in sports science terms. But there's an influencer. There's some other person that you're going to have to try to get on board in terms of what you're doing. So I do think the best thing to do is try to make sure that that person is included, that you speak with them about what's going on, make sure they stay informed because they can, the influencer can derail the athlete. Even, even if the information that you've given the, the athlete is correct, mm -hmm. the influencer can very easily derail yes. the, the process. And so it's making sure that the, that the influencer is on board, understands what's going on, answer all their questions. And it's just as it, it's probably in junior golf, it's almost like you're as crazy as it seems. That's it's right. almost like, it's almost like the, you know, the, Managing that influencer almost becomes more important than the athlete. The athletes are pretty good. They they don't know they'll do what they're told, but just you know the and and everybody's trying to do the, what's right for their kid. I get that or or their their, their loved one or whatever. So I, I'm never going to fault anybody for trying to kind of get better. However, some of the things that, that they bring to the table they just you know, are inappropriate that they don't fit what the you know what the athlete's been doing or even is capable of doing. Right. So I think that kind of goes back to where we started too was where if you. Get, and you, when you lay out the long-term plan, you need to include the influencer 
Always. Not just a student, right? But hey, here's where we're going. I spend a lot of time with parents saying, hey, here's where your junior is. This is where we're going. These are the steps we're going to take along the way. Because I think the more on the front end that the influencer or parent understands the whole vision, the less likely that is to happen. But at the end of the day, let's say in a parent situation with a junior, they're paying the bills. Right. They've got a stake in the conversation, right? And they need to be they need to be informed. Now, this idea of coaches saying, "Don't show up in my lessons, don't come." I mean, I think that's gonna that's that's destined for failure at some point in time. I mean, the the influencer at some point in time is gonna say, "Hey, wait, hey, wait a minute! I need to be read and know what's going on. I'm, I'm the stakeholder here. I'm, 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 you know, I'm I'm paying the freight." And so, I do think that just understanding that was probably be would be something that any young coach I would just try to figure out who the stakeholder is. Make sure that when you put a plan together, that that you include them and keep them informed. I think that probably does more gives you give you the best chance to have some sort of long term relationship. To, and then the one thing that I know for certain, and I know you don't know this too, Tony, is that nothing happens quick. No, right? no. I mean, you know, Jonathan Vegas shows up in in uh, Palm Springs one year and wins a, a PJ Tour event. Everybody says he's an overnight sensation, and the kid's been grinding his tail off for ten straight years, right? right. So he's a te- he's a ten year overnight success. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I think I do think that think, development takes time. I, I love the, the the thing you talked about earlier, trying trying to slow the train down. If you slow everybody down, and says, "Hey, we're not trying to get you know, we're we're trying to kind of get better gradually, so that by the time he's twenty two, twenty three, or twenty four years old, this kid's got all the right tools." Yeah, I love that. I love that, Jackson. You got another one? Sure do. What do you believe is an appropriate amount of time for a junior golfer to be playing on the golf course versus putting time in on the range? I mean, I, I, I like Kevin. I like once they, especially if they're a good high school player and they, you've got some fundamentals and still, and I think the more they play, the better. I mean, I think that's what we're trying to get them to do, to learn how to play golf. Those are the ones to me that are the most fun to teach the ones that are learning how to play golf. Cause then you can go, once they know how to play, you can always go kind of in there and refine movement yeah i mean i think you got you know you got basically the skill component just the basic motor skill component and then you have the you know the performance elements and and so you know it's just it's really trying to kind of once again be intentional and mindful of what it is that you're doing what you know what's happening with the athlete what they're you know for example one of the things that that, that some of the best programs in the world do is that they'll have a, a good young player that's been identified on the state and national level let's say 12 years old and all of a sudden starts growing they'll actually They'll actually pull the kid out of out of you know big big time competitive golf for a year, let their body kind of you know go through that go through that process, and everybody's on board. Everybody everybody fully understands it. So I think you know trying to trying to kind of figure out the the best way to do that. I you know you just it's just on such a case by case basis. I mean I just think that's that's where I keep going back to. Agree, Jackson. Question. Uh, another question. What percentage of your work with tour pros? would be technical versus performance, practice, and playing. I think that for me, that's one where they, you know, a lot of it is what what time of year it is. And, you know, I evaluate that based on what we're doing. Obviously, how they're playing and where their status is. If you're working on making a change, obviously. I, I, but again, going back to what I said earlier, I mean, I think that the majority of the stuff at a tournament is all about playing and preparation and, and how to practice better. And, and I try to keep the the more technical stuff away from that, whether, you know, it'd be here in Mobile or most of the time now is down at Doral where Kevin and I are hanging out. I've tried to do most of it, most of it there rather than at a tournament. I've not, yeah, I, had, a lot of, I've not had a lot of luck 
ever doing very much technical work with a player and getting into something technical at a tournament. I, I just haven't. And maybe I'm not very good at that. Maybe that's partly me, but I've just not had that much success. I've always had more success when technical stuff's done away from the tournament. And then when we get there, it's more about preparing and practicing. I think golf is obviously played on the course. And so the idea of removing the golf course and getting that out of the equation, I think is, is not a great idea. I mean, you can't learn golf in a simulator. You have to be outside where you're, where you have to deal with all the elements, the slopes and all the things that kind of go on. The one thing that, that's not discussed very often in golf, and I think it's, it's probably has one of the greatest impacts is the environment, right? So if you go to the World Scientific Golf Congress, they, they present papers on four things. Number one, the golf ball, the club, the athlete, and the environment. And very rarely do you hear anybody talk about the environment. The golf course is the environment. That's the, I mean, last week at Augusta National, the environment completely, you know, dictated what, what you, you know, what was going to happen. And you have to be adapted to the environment if you're going to be, you know, have, be a successful, you know, successful tour player. And segmenting back also into the last question a little bit, one of the things that I've come to also understand is that, that neurally, the athletes only have a certain amount of time each day that they can be productive. And if you exceed that and start trying to work them too hard, whether it be on-site or off-site, you know, at a bit of it, you know, when they're home for training, the next day when they wake up, they, they're neurally compromised, and all of a sudden you get to a really bad cycle. So, so the idea of working a kid eight hours a day at golf is a very bad idea. I mean, you could probably get five hours a day out of them. And so the question is, what do I need to get done in those five hours? Around tournaments, they should be playing, chipping, and putting, and, and resting. You know, if it, at home, they might be a a combination of skill training and getting them out on the golf course. So that's the coach's job is to figure out how to mix the fuel. But I do think it's at the end of the day, it's keeping those training sessions to, to no longer than about five hours seems to be probably where we're headed. At least that's at the world-class level, at least that's what I'm seeing. And I've just found, and I've implemented the stuff that we do and Kevin, you've been part of it, but like if with developing juniors that if they come in for shorter spurts of information where they're, with us, me, Wayne, who's on here, Kevin and Colby or Jackson, whoever, and, and they're with us for 25, 30 minutes where it's pretty intense. We're talking about things and then you send them on their way. They, they kind of go do their own deal and they process it and, and then they may come back for another 20 minutes. But like, just to me, that's a better, and Kevin, you know, way more about the studies and the science behind it. But to me, my students retain more and seem to be able to process the information better if they're given the information in short spurts and then they go process it and then they come back. I think a lot of real true learning is organic. It actually has to happen by the person who's experiencing the learning. So you can steer and you can kind of guide it a little bit, but I do think a lot of us, and I've done it before and we, you know, we, you know, we, we gravitate towards overcoaching, right? So you, I love the way you go about that, but it's like, okay, I want, I want you to see something. I want you to, I want you to take a look at this you're clear on what's what's going on. I want you to go to work on it, come back to me and tell me and tell me, you know, give me some feedback, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think, you know, once you've identified, let's say you're trying to improve uh, chipping mm-hmm. or, or, or pitching the golf ball, let's say, and, and you've identified, okay, this is, I need you to kind of have the club to work more this way. Do you understand it? Yes. Okay. Here's what it feels like. Do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. Off you go, come back and, and I'm expecting you to kind of go work on it. Even if you fail and come back, that's that's what we're actually one step closer. So everybody's scared to death of failure, right? But if you if you allow the kids to fail and then come back and say, okay, did did you figure it out or no? Okay, well, I didn't figure it out. Okay, well, let's come back and let's circle back around. But at some point in time, they'll get it. And that learning, that organic form of learning, is a much the, the retention on that is much much higher 
you know, higher form of learning that, that I think that we should all be looking to looking to try to gravitate towards. So I love that about the your coaching style, Tony. Thank you. Jackson, I think you got a question and we got one more question, then we'll wrap this up. Yeah. Peter apparently is about to die. And uh, if anybody has any follow-up questions, they're welcome to send it in an email too. And then I can kind of share it with Tony and Kevin. We can communicate those back to you guys. Um, Cause I know I'll be mulling over this for the next couple hours. Um, another question from Clay, great ways to help your players retain information following a lesson. Kind of sounds like what you just talked about, Kevin, but if you have any other methods on uh, information retention. I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, understanding kind of that there's, you know, it goes back to some of the early motor learning things that we've learned. I mean, that, you know, it's visual kinesthetic and, and, you know, uh, you know, there's verbal, visual and kinesthetic learning styles and, and trying to kind of make sure that they're the best thing to do is probably make sure that they have a, maybe one cue from each area. Do you, do you conceptually understand what we're talking about? Yes. Do you understand what it looks like? Do you understand what it feels like? Cause if they can drag those three things out of a lesson, they've got a chance because they've always got references they can go back to. So I think where it gets bad is it, where it can kind of go off the rails is if, if you get somebody who's doesn't have a complete enough understanding and then you send them off. Now there's too much space for them to, to, to weave or, or, you know, get confused and lose confidence in what they're doing and lose confidence in you as a coach. So I do think keeping it in, in, you know, simple, small, you know, take, Whatever information that you're, your data you're pulling in, getting into some sort of simple form, making sure that they understand it in those three languages, and then give them a little bit of homework and say, okay, I need you to come back to me and, and let's let's see what it looks like in, in X time period. I like to have them write the stuff down in their words and their feels. And I also like if a player hits on something during a lesson where like it's an aha moment and they say something felt like it, I like them to go straight away and write it down. Because mm-hmm. I think that I just think it's for me, it's easier if they have have if they have a feel they can go to. You know, that's something I've picked up from the work with Greg Carton. And uh, I've also learned as I've gone along, it's more important what they feel or they think with it's working than it is that it fits with what I think they should say or what I think they should feel. I think like earlier on, I would have people that would be. They'd say, oh, it feels like this. And I would think, no, no, it's not supposed to feel like that. But like, you know, as long as the ball's good and they're doing what they need to be doing, it's more important what they feel and what they and what what they get out of it. Yeah, it's, it's actually allowing them to develop their own language about it. They're and, and us learning learning their language, how they have how they want to language it, try to make sure we communicate on their terms. And so it's based on their perception, it's based on a lot of different things, but allowing them to develop their own own language, interpretation, and make sure that that, yep. Whatever verbiage you use is fine. I think you understand the concept. I'm good with it. We're going to use that verbiage. All right, Jackson, last question, and we'll wrap her up. Yeah, so directed to Kevin kind of based on what we had talked about at the beginning of the um, the call, what have you learned from those different avenues that has stuck with you through your entire coaching? And it might not be necessarily technical stuff, but through your coaching, what's kind of stuck with you through your years? I think really it's, you know, there's a, Coaching is kind of a funny thing because, I mean, there's there's all the technical information that you need to be a good coach there. You have to have some experience. But there's also probably the more most important thing is just is the culture that you develop with yourself and the athletes you, that you coach, that you, you know, that, that they understand that you actually care about them, right? And care about them as human beings and, and really try to kind of make sure that you you develop a culture of care. Because, you know, we, we are... You know, we're, we're, we're service providers, but our, we have a duty of care to, to try to help these people move along in golf. And it's important that they, that they actually that they actually know that. And so 
the, you know, the relationships that you build with people, knowing that they, that you've truly got their best interest at heart. You're not trying to sell them anything. You know, the idea of trying to sell things to people, I think is a really bad idea in golf instruction. Mm -hmm. But if you can show up and show up with, with the idea, I'm here to try to help you. I will do everything in my power. I have a network of people that if I don't have the answer, I'm happy to, to try to help, you know, find that person. And I'm going to be your Sherpa and I'm going to help you learn how to do this. And so if you can approach it with that, I've got people that I've literally taught for 30 years. And just because they know that I care deeply about them, yeah. I, I want, I, 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 I want to be their Sherpa. I want to be part of their golf journey. And so it probably reduces the amount of people you can teach, but the quality of your instruction will go way up. And then and, and the things you're going to find out about the people that you, that you teach. I mean, you know, they're some of the most amazing people ever. So I think that's probably what I would, I would, I would just make sure you don't lose track of that. I love that. Some of the best moments are the notes and the cards you get from people that you've taught forever that, that uh, tell you how much you mean to them on the journey yeah. of their playing. Yeah. And that's priceless. So yeah. awesome. Jackson, thanks as always. Kevin, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy this time of year, and but uh, this has been great for everybody, great for me. And also, I'm enjoying the hell out of us spending some time down there at Doral. We'll keep doing it and having some fun. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate you and uh, and Jackson. And you know, before we hop off, I want to I want to just take a second to uh, to thank you for the the work that you do in our golf space, Tony. I mean, you're you were you relentlessly kind of you know find avenues to to communicate with people about golf to try to make sure that they understand it's fun. You're a great teacher. You, you care about your coaches. You care about the people around you. And I, I want to let you know that I really appreciate you. And thank you for letting me be on your, on your podcast. I appreciate that, Kevin. That was awesome. Jackson, thanks. We'll look forward to doing this next month. And uh, for the folks that are going to be listening on the podcast, I'll obviously be one next week. But Kevin, I'll look forward to seeing you in a week or so. All right, pal. Jackson, thanks, right, buddy. Thanks, thanks, everybody. everybody. See you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Tour Coach. I want to take a minute and thank Cordy Walker and Golf Science Lab, as well as my sponsors Shrikshan, Buick, Bushnell, and Vineyard Vines for helping make all of this possible and helping me share my insights with you. If you like what you've heard, why don't you check out more on the Dew Sweepers channel on YouTube, as well as the Dew Sweeper on Instagram, or go to dewsweepersgolf.com to find out more about my teaching, my travels, and where you can find out more about me.